Hey, tonight, um, tonight's one of my f- uh, favorite of this class, even though I say that like every week. But <clears throat> there's just, uh, I-, I look forward to tonight because there's a lot of hope in this. And also, I think you'll find it extremely practical for, for your life. As we have studied the life of Jesus over the last six weeks, if we don't walk away with some kind of practicality or some kind of call to action for us, then I think we would have missed something pretty fundamental about his life. Because we as Christians believe that Jesus is alive and that he continues to take on disciples and call them into a certain type of life that plays itself out in an extremely significant way in the world. So that's going to be the, the thrust of tonight. We're going to talk about, obviously, the resurrection. But then uh, the deeper meaning of what, what does the resurrection mean in light of, of how we live our lives today and how does that play itself out in discipleship to Jesus as he commissioned his church to go and make disciples. So that, that's what we're going to do tonight. And I also wanted to point you guys out. I'm going to, this will be the second time I've made this announcement, but there's a, uh, tomorrow at noon, there's another webinar. <laughs> you guys are like, man, all right. And if you take the keys to effective Bible study class, which is the next core class that starts in June, then you'll hear us announce it at that. So we'll just keep, continue to push you guys to that resource. I'm really excited about this one tomorrow because we are going to talk about uh, answering those questions. What is Christian discipleship and who is a disciple? I have found in my own life, as I think through discipleship a lot, that's, that's the subject that I'm studying in school right now. I've found that pretty much if you put 10 people in a room and ask those 10 people that question, you're going to get 10 different answers to that. And so I find a lot of confusion around uh, around. Sub, the subject of discipleship, and a lot of times people hold conflicting views, and they hold conflicting views really strongly. So that doesn't help when you start to tr- try to provide clarity about what discipleship is, and so tomorrow we're going to try to hopefully bring clarity to that subject. You might get some of it tonight, but we'll go deeper into that because uh, the guy, guest host, uh, Dr. Steve Porter, he's actually my faculty advisor. Um, he's the one who's leading the group, uh, um, my doctoral cohort, through this subject of, of Christian discipleship, and he's a really sharp dude. So if you have time tomorrow, if you're sitting at your desk or in your car or whatever, um, you can register for that and listen in. It's just from 12 to 1 tomorrow. And then, so for tonight, let's, we're going to talk through the resurrection. So get out. There, there should be the, the notes that have the three slides on the page, and then there should be another one that is a challenge in response. That's the challenge is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? So get out that sheet that uh, it actually has a lot of places for you to write in the answers. I'm going to we'll take us through that. But before we start that, let me pray for us, and then we'll launch out into it. Well, Jesus, we are grateful for the last month and a half that we've had to come to this place to to worship you, to think more rightly about you, to deepen our discipleship to you, and to do so 
in a comfortable place in a nice building without fear. And we're grateful for that. So I pray that you would bless our time tonight. Uh, we just recognize that there's only one teacher and you're him. So I pray through your spirit that you would guide us through tonight and help this just to be an appropriate end to a class um, who at the very center um, stands you. So we love you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I'm also, just to give you guys a heads up, but toward the end, I'm going to try to leave about 15 to 20 minutes at the end of our time um, to just allow you guys to, for, for there to be a little bit of a kind of group discussion among us here. So just like every week, there's two mics. And I would just encourage you guys that basically that 15 to 20 minutes is just allow you, if you would like to, to just share like, hey, this is, this is how um, the last six weeks of, of study in this subject has, has shifted or changed the way that I think about Jesus. It's how it's influenced the way that I think about Jesus. And this is some of the practicalities that I feel like moving forward, how, it, how it's going to affect my life. So it's just going to be an opportunity for, for you guys to just have a sounding board for 10 or 15 minutes. So I wanted to give you guys the heads up about that. So obviously last week we left, uh, Jesus was dead <laughs> on the cross. And it's, it's significant that Jesus was dead because when it talks about the fact that they buried Jesus, they, they buried him following the verification of the fact that he actually was dead. It's not, like they, uh, it's not like they thought he was dead, he was just beat up really badly, and then they lowered his body from the cross and put it in a tomb, and then, but really he wasn't dead, which was actually one of the uh, theories that circulated, um, or uh, and, and actually still circu- circulates today. It's called the swoon theory. The fact that Jesus was just wounded really badly. So it's significant that the, 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 the Roman soldier um, actually pierced Jesus' side because what he did was uh, actually prove that the water that came out of Jesus' side was evidence that that um, sack that holds your heart and cushions it um, was freed of its liquid, right? This clear liquid that provides a cushion around your heart. Jesus was actually dead. He wasn't just wounded. And um, the, the first H in this, did Jesus rise from the dead, is that Jesus was buried in an honorable way. So Jesus was uh, definitely dead. I don't know of anybody other than people who exist in like the extreme skeptic case, uh, camp where they're literally questioning everything. And for those people, I normally am just like, hey, I think if you're questioning everything, then you ought to question your questioning. That, that seems like a logical thing for you to do. But um, it's, it's like they'll question everything but their own uh, thought process, which is a little baffling to me. But, um, but pretty much everybody, uh, atheist, agnostic, uh, you know, Christian scholars who have studied the resurrection or the, the claim of the resurrection agree that Jesus was actually dead, that the historical figure Jesus who walked around, claimed things about himself, did things about those claims, that he actually did die on the cross. And so it's significant that he's buried honorably because a lot of times when they would remove the corpse 
from the cross or whatever means they executed these guys, if it was just a common criminal, a lot of times they would just dispense of the, of the corpse like in a trash heap. They would just throw the person's body away. And if that was the case with Jesus, then any kind of claim of resurrection would be extremely difficult to validate because there was his body other than you know appearances. But even then, it's, uh, it's not like you, they would have known exactly where he was buried. So the fact that he was buried honorably is extremely important because they knew that, and that both the Jews and the Romans knew because they were the ones that did it, right? They, they uh, prepared his body, put it into a known tomb, and then rolled a stone over it. So if somebody was saying, hey, where is Jesus' body? They could say with a pretty good degree of certainty, it's right over there. If you go unroll the stone, then it, you'll find it on the other side of the stone. So he was honorably buried. We actually know the guy um, who did it. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, this Joseph of Arimathea. Um, and in cahoots with Nicodemus, actually, who helped him. Um, and they, they put his body into the tomb. Uh, the picture, I forgot there's a picture there. <laughs> so uh, this is a picture of uh, the tomb in uh, what's known as the Garden Tomb, just outside of Jerusalem. Um, who knows? Like, potentially, this is the tomb. It, it fits descriptions. But, uh, I mean, historically, maybe, but probably not. <laughs> Even though, because when I was there, I took this picture. When I was there, I was like, this, um, this would be really cool to actually know that I'm standing in the place where Jesus, like, was raised from the dead. Um, probably more than likely, it was, uh, historically, is on the site where they built a church, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and it's really gaudy, and they burn incense there in there all the time, and um, anyway, but that's what this picture is. It's the garden tomb. The second thing we know about the resurrection is that um, while Jesus was dead and was buried in, uh, in a known tomb, that, that three days later, and what I mean by three days, I don't mean like 24-hour time periods, I mean, and that's the way they counted days, like it's Friday, and then it's Saturday, and then it's Sunday, right? So he died on Friday, was dead Friday, dead Saturday, dead Sunday until Sunday morning. That, and that Sunday morning, that tomb was empty. So the next thing is the empty tomb. Again, honorable burial, known tomb. Three days later, that tomb that held Jesus' body no longer held Jesus' body. Okay, pretty simple. These are... Um, these are all facts, actually, that most people, even people who are not Christian, totally agree with. The next one is appearances. So, um, turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to hang in there for a second. This is appropriately a chapter about resurrection. So this is Paul. Paul's at the end of his letter to the, uh, his first letter to the church at Corinth. I'll just start in verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. 
By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Um, and then this is where we'll, we'll focus in on. For what I received... So now Paul's talking about something that he has received. And what he's talking about is the fact that he's received something from the apostles in Jerusalem who were eyewitnesses of this event. So Paul, who's writing uh, to the church at Corinth probably in the, in the uh, 50s, a couple of decades after the fact, is talking about the fact that he received something from, from the apostles that when you trace it all the way back to when the apostles began to um, pass along creeds like this, you're talking about um, in, in, the most, in the most conservative viewpoints that this creed was, began to circulate even uh, like months after the crucifixion. So you're not talking about something that happened, like the crucifixion happened, and then like 10 years later, they started talking about it. Do you see what I'm saying? Like the crucifixion happened, and then this resurrection event, uh, the alleged resurrection event happens, and then the uh, early Christians, they, they almost immediately began to formulate creeds ab- around the events that had taken place. Okay, um, And this is what Paul says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. All right, and here is the creed. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Okay, so he's dead. And not only dead, but it's significant to note that he doesn't just die a meaningless death. The death that he dies has a meaning to it, just like we talked about last week. That there's something significant going on here by the fact that um, the Father has uh, shunned his Son and has placed on him something that's so significant um, that uh, Jesus, as the, the person who claimed to be the Son of God, is now actually dying. And that's really significant for what we're talking about, obviously, because it's not just that he died, it's that he died for our sins. Actually, my son, I was talking to my son about this this week, my son's only three, right? So our, our conversations are not like these deep theological conversations, you know. Um, and he loves Johnny Cash. <clears throat> it's, like his, uh, it's like his thing. If he wants to listen to a song, and I've got like, I downloaded this song a long time ago. But have you guys heard the, the Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue? Right? You guys know Boy Named Sue? So it's hilarious. I love Boy Named Sue. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 bashed a chair across his face. We went through the wall and into the street, kicking and gouging in the mud and the blood and the beer. You know, this is a boy named Sue. I love that song. <clears throat> anyway, well, Nate one time was like, hey, what's this song? And so I was like, that's boy named Sue. And this is before he could like understand anything, you know. So I was like, you want to listen to it? He's like, yeah, this is like parenting 101. Let your kid listen to boy named Sue by Johnny Cash. Anyway, Nate has fallen in love with this song. Well, then I had another song on uh, that same, you know how on your phone, it, it uh, delineates song by artist. So the artist is at the top and then various songs. Well, the other one I have was, was uh, the one that Johnny Cash covered right before he died called Hurt, right? It's this Nine Inch Nail song. And I love that song too. The music video for that song is really cool. I encourage you guys to check it out. But <clears throat> I told Nate, I was like, hey, Johnny Cash wrote this song right before he died. And Nate was like, he looked at me like shocked. He's like, Johnny Cash is dead? You know? And I was like... 
yeah, Johnny Cash is dead. So for a while, like, that's been on Nate's mind, and he'll just bring it up randomly. Like, we were driving down the road one time, like, weeks later, and he's like, Johnny Cash is dead, you know? Like, he's definitive about it, you know? And I'm like, yeah, he, he's dead. Um, he died a while ago. Um, but, so, so Nate, we're, we're, I was talking to Nate about Jesus, and, and Jesus, or, uh, Nate looked at me, and he, he's like, so uh, uh, Jesus, is, Jesus is not dead, <laughs> right? Is Jesus dead, or is Jesus not dead? And, and uh, um, I, I began to, to explain to him, because I think what he's wrestling with, because the very first verse that Nate ever memorized um, in his entire life, hang on, I've got a recording of it, it's really cute. Um, <laughs> so we're like, yes, it's awesome. It actually is really awesome. But hang on, just a second. Here we go. He was probably, oh, I don't know. He's probably a year and a half old when he did this. Hang on, here we go. Jesus said, Right. So the, the very first thing that, that Nate begins to learn is that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And so Nate's struggling with this, this idea of, of, of if Jesus is the life, then how, is, how did Jesus die? Right. And so I, told, I spent, what, five minutes prepping this to just reiterate what I said last week, which is that, um, look, Jesus, and I, I think C.S. Lewis nailed it with that quote where he said, Jesus, Jesus was so full of life that when he wished to die, he had to borrow death from other people. And so it was a great opportunity for me to share the gospel with my son and to say, hey, Nate, you know how, you know how Jesus died? Um, he, he, he died because he took your death. He died because he took my death. And, and we're going to talk at length about that tonight. But, but I say all that to, to just reiterate that the, the the death of Jesus is extremely significant. That that Christ died for our sins, and, and the and the not just the sins that you that that you think about when you think like, oh yeah, everybody's a sinner and sin. Kind of this um, conservative evangelical kind of formulaic like, okay, you're a sinner and your sins send you to hell and don't go to hell. So accept Jesus, right? Um, no, I mean, that's part of, that's part of it, obviously, um, that, but that's more consequential than it is meaningful. Are you tracking with me? Like, it's meaningful that the fact that our rebellion against God actually relation, relationally separated us from Him. And that when you're separated from life, the natural consequence of that separation is that you die. Your body decays. You're, you've been subjected to futility, like Romans 8 says. Not just that you go to hell. Um, that's, that's just the consequence of the meaning of the fact that you have sinned against God. And, and so what Paul is saying uh, as a first importance is that Christ died for your sins. He absorbed your rebellion and took it upon Himself. This is the meaning of the cross. But it doesn't stop there. That He was buried. So there's honorable burial. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some of them have fallen asleep. So 
Jesus has not just died a meaningful death for our sins um, to absorb the fact of our to absorb our rebellion against God, but that he was buried in a known tomb, that three days later that tomb was actually empty. He actually died, the tomb was actually empty. And then he actually appeared to a bunch of people. And 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 I think Paul is 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 saying to Peter and the twelve and then he, he shifts a little bit in verse 6, and he's like, oh, and by the way, he wasn't just appearing to his best friends who wanted him to be alive again. Right? This would be easily refutable if you're looking at this in a skeptical sense to say, hey, Jesus is clearly um, appearing, uh, he's, he's appearing to people who want him to be alive. Right? And he's doing it in an isolated sense. Which, by the way, that's where all, the other, all of the other religions in the world happened to be founded on people who had an isolated instance where they, be, where they uh, at least claimed to be communing with God. And yet Christianity shows itself publicly um, in, in a sense of what, what's known as multiple attestation. Right? Jesus is not just appearing to Peter in a closet. He's not just appearing to 12 people who want to see him alive again. He's appearing to 500 people at one time. Now again... Um, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a, a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I know one thing. I know that there is no such thing as um, c- communal or corporate hallucination. Right? It's one thing if, one says, if somebody says, if one person says they see something, it's a whole other thing if 500 people all say they saw the same thing at the same time. Right? That does not happen. And, and in case, I mean, in case Paul might have even been thinking of, of the skeptics in the, the church at Corinth, because he says um, that, that he didn't just appear to the brothers at the same time. Um, he said, hey, some of them have died, um, but most of them are still alive, <laughs> right? Which begs the question, what? If you don't believe me, then what? Go talk to them, Right? Um, the, 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 this is an eyewitness testimony that Jesus is appearing to a ton of people after he's raised from the dead. All right, the, 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 fourth, the fourth one is an R. It's, it's the rise of Christianity. And I think of all of the, if we're thinking about this in, a, in an apologetic, in apologetic sense, where we're defending the claim of the resurrection, this claim uh, or this, this fact, the fact that Christianity arose out of Judaism is, is, in my opinion, I think one of the strongest things that I, I mean, if I was a skeptic, I just don't know what I would do with this. But, and it's, it's because most people aren't thinking about it, right? Because you have to understand, as, we, as we'll talk about more tonight as well, this did not happen in a vacuum. These claims and, and these events didn't happen in a vacuum. They had a context, and they had a, they had a people that they happened among. And those people happened to be Jews. And of all of the people groups in the entire, on the entire face of the planet, the Jews were, of, uh, of all those people, the people who were the most staunchly monotheistic. So the, the very creed of Judaism is... This idea of the of uh, of the Shema, the Shema is just a Hebrew word. It means to hear, and and it's it's that it's kind of the formula in Deuteronomy where it says, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." Right? There, they were strictly monotheistic. They were so strictly monotheistic that this was the thing that identified them as a people. 
Torah was the thing that identified them as a people. And that this one God was with them. There could not possibly be another God. Are are you tracking with me? And what's crazy is, is that we would expect a a claim like a a miracle-working deity who is a man to arise in like India, Greece, Rome, Africa, uh, Asia, pretty much anywhere else, right? The place you don't expect it and would even be shocked if it did arise out of that is among the Jews. And yet, what you see in Judaism in the first century is you see these guys who have been trained um, since childhood in Judaism. And they have been trained all their lives that their identity is tied into this central claim. And those people begin to worship Yahweh the Father and Yahweh the Son. That's crazy. And for any skeptic who who might be out there, that demands explanation. How do you explain that? It's, it, 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 it makes no sense apart from the reality of the fact that there was a man who was dead and then he wasn't dead anymore. And he made claims about himself that tied him um, into the, uh, the things that we're going to talk about the rest of the night. And, and it just it's baffling to me that Christianity would arise out of Judaism um, if it's not true. Are, are you tracking with me? So the rise of Christianity. And then lastly, the transfer of the Sabbath. Again, I don't want to reiterate the point, but, but, but you have the Jews who are, their identity is so tied into what they believe in, and the Sabbath is the Saturday for them. And yet, we don't just find that the, the, the Christian beliefs about Jesus rise out of Judaism. They also transfer the holy week, the holy day of the week, from Saturday to Sunday. And Justin Martyr, in one of his writings in the early, at the turn of the first century, um, is really clear. He's like, the reason we did that is because Jesus is alive on Sunday morning. Right? And so, for anybody who is just looking at the resurrection, and obviously the, the acrostic here spells heart, which I think is a great tool for you guys. Like, if you're interacting with, with people who are skeptical of the resurrection or they're skeptical of Christianity or, or anything like this, this would give you, this is a great water cooler tactic, right? For, for you to share. Like, dude, do you, you seriously believe Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, come on. People don't rise from the dead. And, and, and I'm, uh, let's say I'm role playing with myself, right? And, and, I, and I'm saying, well, have you considered the evidence? Well, I mean, what evidence is that? I mean, some cuckoo people said something one time. It's like, no, there's actually like good evidence for this, right? Um, I mean, it's really clear in history that Jesus died and that he was honorably buried. We know where he was buried. And then three days later, that tomb was empty. And then it's really clear also that he appeared to a bunch of people all at once. Um, Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered that there were eyewitnesses that wrote this stuff down to tell you that Jesus is actually alive? And and there's no such thing as collective hallucination. How in the world would would these people have come up with that unless it actually happened? And then, what's even crazier than that, 
is that out of Judaism, this strictly monotheistic religion where Yahweh was only the Father, that these, pe- that these people, these Jews, begin to worship God, Yahweh the Father and Yahweh the Son. How do you explain that? And oh, by the way, how do you explain that those same people change the holy day in the week from Saturday to Sunday? So it seems to me to be that there's a lot of good evidence for this, and I think you should consider it. Right? That took me about three minutes, right? Um, and now that person is sitting there going, uh, okay, I've got to wrestle with this stuff. Right? You've put a stone in their shoe. And now they're walking around going, ah, I need to think about that stuff. Right? So that's just a good way to remember. And you guys can remember it, I promise you. I did this one time with the students at Fort Worth. And some 13-year-old memorized this, and he started, to, he started witnessing to his friends at school, right? And they didn't have an answer for him. <laughs> so I think, actually, the last I heard um, is, uh, well, I don't want to confuse that because um, I can't remember what happened, but there was a kid over there that was witnessing to his friends. Anyway, so you guys can remember that. Um, so there, there's, uh, I want to stop here and talk about two different things. So when we talk about meaning, and, and I don't want to get too lofty here, but when we talk about meaning, meaning is extremely important. So if I say to you, um, man, that, that pitcher uh, is a Rembrandt because he can, what? He can paint the corners, right? Um, if I am sitting in a, an art class, then that has a certain meaning in that art class. If I'm out at the ballpark in Arlington, that has a totally different meaning. Are you tracking with me? So um, it's extremely important that we talk about meaning. What does the resurrection mean? The fact that Jesus was dead and then he's not dead anymore. Um, Because frankly, guys, a lot of times we talk about the resurrection and and in a context that uh, does not allow its fullest meaning for us to appreciate. We're talking about Jesus' resurrection um, as, Rem, as, a, as a pitcher, in a, uh, as, as a Rembrandt who paints the corners in an art room instead of using that same phrase at the ballpark in Arlington where you're like, dude, he's a Rembrandt. He could paint the corners. You're like, oh, now it makes sense. Because most of the time we in our, in our post-enlightenment Western evangelical mindset, we just think about the resurrection as Jesus was dead and then he was not dead anymore. I mean, that's pretty much, and somehow that makes him God, (laughs) right? And somehow that means I should worship him and okay, I don't want to go to hell, so I'll just, uh, I mean, I I believe that that actually happened and I don't want to go to hell, so I'll follow him and maybe that'll work out for me in some way. Um, I, I see that all the time. And yet, I think that Jesus' resurrection happened among a people, like we were talking about, the Jews, who had a certain concept about the world, where their identity was tied to Yahweh, where their, where their identity as a people was, had been suppressed by so many different people that their yearning was for the kingdom of God, um, like literally the kingdom of God, to, to come down onto the earth and to rule. And for that to happen, then all of the other foreign powers had to be eradicated. Okay, So in their mindset, um, they are looking for um, someone who's going to challenge Rome, someone who is going to establish himself as the king of the world, and someone who, um, in their concept, was a fulfillment of what David had said 
in 2 Samuel chapter 7, some 1,000 years prior to this going on, where David said, um, there will be a king, or where the Lord, Yahweh, promised David, there will be a king that will perpetually rule on the throne forever. That's what they were looking for. So Jesus rose from the dead means something to post-enlightenment Western evangelicals today, here and now. That has a meaning here. But for the first century Jews who are looking for the Messiah, Jesus rose from the dead has a much fuller and deeper meaning. Okay? And, and that's what I'm going to walk through with you now. So what does it mean um, that Jesus raised from the dead? Well, I think, first of all, for, for the first century audience, and I would just tell you, as you read Scripture and as you are thinking about this, if we are assigning meaning to the text that the first century audience would not have had any kind of concept of, then I think we've missed it. Okay? Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying that, that the text can't have a fuller meaning, uh, but, but it definitely, at the very least, needs to make sense to the audience that, um, that these events actually occurred in. So when Jesus is alive from the dead, then what that meant for them, firstly, is that, hey, um, this person that we have been waiting on for thousands of years, that, that, that Yahweh has promised to us, um, then, uh, and, and that Jesus made claim about himself to be, uh, go back to week two of this class, then, um, then we can say with certainty that something has happened here whereby the, the Messiah has actually showed up on the earth. Okay? So Jesus rose from the dead for a first century Jew means he's the Messiah. Which is why when Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, um, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God, and by the Son of God, they meant the Messiah. This one who was to establish himself as the king of Israel. So basically what the first century Jew who now who witnessed these things is, is now all of a sudden faced with the fact that the uh, king of Israel, this one who would perpetually rule on the throne of David forever, that, that that person has actually shown up on the earth. And his name is Jesus. He's the promised son of God. He's the promised Messiah. He's the one in... He's, if you're looking at Israel's history... Right? And, it, and it folds like a book. Right? Jesus, um, the Messiah, is the hinge. He's the very center of it. Right? Everything preceding it leads up to that. And everything following it looks back to it. He's the rightful king of Israel. Secondly, he's the rightful son of God. Right? And what, what the, so the son of, son of God doesn't just mean that he is the king of Israel, the Messiah, but also in that context, every day, day in and day out, the Jews had to look at a coin. And on the coin, it said, Caesar Augustus, um, son of God. Did you know that? That was the inscription that was written on every single Roman coin. Caesar Augustus, son of God. And then Jesus shows up, and Jesus claims to be the Son of God. What does that mean? That means Jesus is, is in every conceivable way, um, an affront to the power in Rome. Jesus is not just claiming to be the one who has the right and the authority to rule over Israel. 
He's saying, uh, and by his resurrection, it's saying, no, I also am challenging the tyranny of Rome. I'm also, I'm also staking claim, not, to, not just to Jerusalem, but to Rome. So I'm not just the king of some small people group in kind of the backwoods part of the Roman Empire. I'm the king of everybody, everywhere, for all time. That's the, that's the meaning of the rightful Son of God. He is the King of the entire world. And, and frankly, that's why when you look at the Roman persecution of the Christians, one of the reasons that, that the Christians um, tick the Romans off so badly is because of this claim right here. Because ultimately the Christians were looking at Caesar and Rome and going, hey dude, that's not your seat. Get off of it. That's what they were saying. No wonder they killed Christians, right? Um, but that's exactly, that is exactly what um, the resurrection of Jesus meant. It meant that he was the Jewish Messiah and also the king of the entire world. And then lastly, uh, Jesus is the embodied Son of God, capital S. And this is the thing that I think for the early church um, that really, I mean, I would, uh, you know, you, you kind of, when I picture these events taking place, I mean, I'm thinking about the disciples huddled up, you know, in this, in, in this room where they're struggling with what, I mean, you have to understand, nobody, nobody saw this coming, right? I mean, even though Jesus had just told them, Right? He told them multiple times, the Son of Man is going to be uh, delivered up and crucified and, and dead and buried, but three days later he'll rise again. You know? and, and, and I mean, I think in their mind, they probably were thinking like not the way that it played out. They were, again, talking about meaning in time and place in a context. In their context, that meant something else. And, and yet, um, here he is, alive from the dead, interacting with them, touching them, having Thomas Put, having Thomas put his hands into the wounds of Jesus. Jesus is like, look, dude, touch me right here. I'm alive. Right? So we're not talking about some kind of spiritual, ethereal, out there resurrection where, well, Jesus didn't actually physically rise from the dead. He was just spiritually alive. No. A resounding no. Jesus physically, literally got up from the dead because he was staking claim to the fact that um, not just I'm king over Israel, king over the world. He, he's saying, look, I control all matter everywhere. Right? If I, if I want to lay my life down, then I can take it up again because that's my prerogative. I'm the king of the world. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, a couple of reasons. One, they had already, they had al- he had already appeared to them. And so I think probably it was early in the morning because he's like cooking breakfast for them and they probably couldn't see him. I mean, um, because they're, once you're out in the lake, it's tough to see. And frankly, too, as someone whose eyes suck, they didn't have glasses back then, you know. Um, so they're probably like, what? <laughs> um, and we don't know who else is. Or I mean, a lot of times we think of that as like, you know, like they were fishing and... Um, 
like Jesus was the only one on the shore. We, I mean, we don't know. There may have been other people around. I mean, who, who knows? Um, so the short answer to that is I have no idea, but you can get, have a good guess. Um, so all of these meanings, ultimately, when Paul is talking and, and is beginning his, his letter to the Romans, um, says this, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? So now, as we think about what does it mean Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus is alive from the dead, well, it means all three of those things. And you can't separate them from one another. In fact, I would say that, that uh, they, they, they build on each other. So the claim that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah begin there. Because that's where these things took place. And that's where the fullest meaning of what Israel was looking at was taking place. But then you exp- expand on that. And, and then Jesus' claim to be the rightful Son of God as the King of the world um, is then uh, another layer of meaning that's going on there. And then ultimately, and I think this is what the disciples really um, wrestling with early, early on and trying to grapple with these things, is they began to realize and they began to recall all of the things that Jesus had said about himself. And, and, and it, frankly, it wasn't that hard to recall because they'd spent three years with him. This stuff had been repeated over and over and over and over again. I guarantee you, just the stuff we read in the gospel is just one snippet of the, of the conversations that Jesus had with these guys over a three-year period. Okay? In fact, John even says that at the end of his book. He's like, look, if I wrote everything else down, I suppose all the libraries in the world would not hold the books that I could write about this. So there's a lot of stuff we don't know, but they're giving us a portrait of Jesus, which is kind of the point of this class, right? Somebody asked me last week, hey, what's the point of this class? And Which is a great question. And I said, I think the point of the class is, 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 for, um, is for us to, to look at Jesus in such a way that we get an accurate portrait of him, right? So that, we, so that we follow him more accurately, we think about him more rightly, we worship him more fully. Because now we, now we don't have rival conceptions about Jesus that we formulate in our own minds. Um, we're actually worshiping the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus of history, right? the man who was dead and is now alive. And, and so... Um, Paul is, is, is using these things. He's building um, this, this argument to say Jesus, in the fullest sense of the resurrection, is the, is the, the, the long-awaited Messiah who is the king of the world and ultimately um, is the incarnate God. Which is why the first century Jews um, began to worship Jesus as God. He claimed to be God he did things that validated his claims, but even then they were like, "Man, maybe this guy is just maybe this guy is just a miracle worker who, you know, who's anointed by God, but he's saying crazy things like he's one with the Father." And then John eight fifty eight, "I am God, right? I am, I am like, whoa, that's a little far." And which which is, is crazy, and he's just another um, false Messiah, except for the fact that three days after he's dead, he's not dead anymore, right? And they're like, uh. Paradigm shift, right? Um, begin to worship that guy. <laughs> um, change the day from Saturday to Sunday. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Paul says this. 
He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Right? Have you all ever read that before? Anybody ever read that before? Raise your hand. Well, you guys need to read your Bibles, right? Anybody ever read Ephesians before? Please, thank you. <laughs> if you haven't, seriously, the next core class is called Keys to Effective Bible Study, all right? Um, we'll teach you how to read the Bible. Um, but I, I think for a long time when I read this passage, I was like, what in the world does that mean, right? Um, he ascended on high. He led captive a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Um, he ascended, wasn't he? He says he has descended into the lower parts of the earth. Um, he descended far above all this. Okay, I, all right, yeah, I believe that. But what in the world does that mean? And I, I think that um, C.S. Lewis is helpful here in, in painting a picture of what's going on because I think, um, actually, a buddy of mine, Justin Bass, wrote his doctoral dissertation on um, Christ's descent into hell. It's called Keys to the Kingdom. Um, really good. <clears throat> um, he, he puts it in like I'm trying to do right now. He puts it in its context to, so it's, you can grasp the meaning of, of what he's talking about. But, but I think when Jesus died on the cross, I think that he literally went to, uh, as we know, prob- not as you think of hell, but I think he went to the holding, I think he went to the place of the dead. Okay? And, and I think that um, there was a lot of Old Testament or, or people who had faith in God um, and in the promised Messiah that was to come, even if they didn't have explicit knowledge of him, I think he went to the place of the dead to go get them out of that place. Right? And that the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection, that that was Jesus not only rising from the dead, but also him leading out that host of captives from the place of the dead to where um, they are now uh, um, with the Father. And, and which would at least in part explain why in Matthew's account of all these things, when Jesus died, a bunch of people got up from the dead, right? That's crazy. I mean, don't think I've re- I, I don't read this stuff through a skeptical viewpoint. I mean, that sounds nuts, right? Um, except for the fact that there's really good evidence that says that's actually what happened. And again, that's when we back up and you're like, okay, what lens am I looking at this through? Am I looking at, th- at it through my Western um, kind of post-enlightenment, I need proof for everything kind of lens? But, but I think even when it, it, in this, as, as I'll read this Lewis quote in just a second, as we look at this, we begin to look at it to say what kind of event is taking place here and in what story is it taking place? So this is Lewis, and I think he, he does a really good job of painting a picture of this. Um, because it's not just that Jesus goes and, and redeems um, the saints out of the place of the dead. Uh, even his death and resurrection is doing so much more than that. The story of the incarnation is the story of a descent and resurrection. When I say resurrection here, I'm not referring simply to the first few hours or the first few weeks of the resurrection. I'm talking of the whole huge pattern of descent down, down, and then back up again. What we ordinarily call the resurrection just being, so to speak, the point at which it turns. Again, that hinge point, right? the center of history. Think what that descent is. 
One has a picture of a diver stripping off garment after garment, making himself naked, then flashing for a moment in the air, and then down through the green and warm and sunlit water into the pitch black, cold, freezing water, down into the mud and slime. And then back up again, his lungs almost bursting, back again to the green and warm and sunlit water, and then last, at last, out into the sunshine, holding in his hand the dripping thing he went down to get. This thing is human nature, but associated with it, all of nature, the new universe. Payment needed to, payment needed to happen in order for healing to take place. A, 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 a surgery, so to speak, a cutting out um, needs to happen in order for healing to take place. And what we see in the death of Jesus is the absorption of our disease... And then a descent down, that was part of his descent down, was to absorb all of our disease, to grab what had been broken and was subjected to futility. And he went and got it and picked it back up and brought it back up. And that back up is called resurrection. So that the one who is alive from the dead, and here's the crazy part, is the one who is alive from the dead, that those who are with him vicariously gain his life through his resurrection. So that if you are in Christ, even if you die, you will not stay dead. That's why when when someone dies, we, we, we weep for them, but we don't weep as people who don't have hope. And, and frankly, too, you know what death is? Death is the ultimate, death is the ultimate weapon of the tyrant. As I was thinking about this uh, this week, I was thinking about those Egyptians, um, the, the, the Coptic Christians, um, just recently, who got led down to the water by ISIS, and one by one, they slit their throats. Right? And these guys died. They died very specifically because of their claim to be a Jesus follower. And, and we look at that, and what that does is, I mean, what, what ISIS is trying to use that, that tool for is a, is a tool of a method of intimidation, of coercion, so that, you'll, so that you will forsake your claim to be a Jesus follower, to be in Christ, and come follow Muhammad and Allah. And, and, and here is the greatest tool of the tyrant for me to slit your throat. And here is the crazy thing is that with Jesus' resurrection from the dead and with His resurrection, the resurrection and making of all things new, the thing that Jesus takes away from ISIS is the power of death. The knife doesn't mean anything anymore. Because even those guys that that fall down and don't have a... a, a, I mean, I think they beheaded them. Their their head is separated from their body. I mean, Jesus is going to walk down and He's going to put their head back on. And breathe new life into their body. And they're going to live. Right? And the ISIS guys with a knife are like, wait a second. I don't have a knife anymore. I don't have the power of death anymore. That's why, that's why Hebrews, um, I, I believe it's chapter 2, where it says he's freed us from the fear of death. Because it's not the end. That's the power of the gospel. And, and it also shows, in, in, in a miraculous way, right, the, the fact that um, we get to, as those who are followers of Jesus, 
as those who have staked our claim in the fact that he's alive from the dead, right? It, 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 it reveals to us that we get to be a part of that epic story that's taking place right here, right now. Right? That breathes a new kind of meaning into a life that the secular world looks at and says, this is meaningless. And yet, we're saying, no, it's full of meaning. It's full of meaning that Jesus is redeeming. Right? He went down and got human nature and along with it, all of the rest of creation. And, and, he's, and He is right now redeeming it. We get to play a part in this story whereby the kingdom of God is being brought down to the earth. It's, Jesus announced it, he brought it, he inaugurated it, and then now we get to be the ones who are co-heirs, we get to be the ones who are co-laborers with Jesus to expand the kingdom of God um, so that we are the ones now who are looking at the world and we're going, hey, get off of that throne. It's not your seat. You may sit on it now, and you may have some kind of strategic position of power right now, but we are here to put a stake in the ground and stake the claim that that throne is not yours. It doesn't belong to you. There's a great, um, the way, you know, I told you guys about uh, N.T. Wright's three-volume work, right? This is, um, this 800-page book is the third book in that volume, uh, those three volumes. Um, But this is the way Tom Wright finishes this book. It's, It's epic. He says this, no wonder, and this is a long quote, so just hang in with me. All right? He says, no wonder the Herods, the Caesars, the Sadducees of this world, ancient and modern, were and are eager to rule out all possibility of actual resurrection. They are, after all, staking a counterclaim on the real world. It's the real world that the tyrants and bullies, including intellectual and cultural tyrants and bullies, they try to rule it by force, only to discover that in order to do so, they have to squash all rumors of resurrection. Rumors that would imply that their greatest weapons, death and deconstruction, are not, after all, omnipotent. But it is the real world and Jewish thinking that the real God made and still grieves over. It is the real world that, in the earliest stories of Jesus' resurrection, was decisively and forever reclaimed by that event. An event which demanded to be understood not as a bizarre miracle, but as the beginning of the new creation. It's the real world that, however complex this may become, historians are are committed to studying. And however dangerous this may turn out to be, it's the real world in and for which Christians are committed to living in and, where necessary, dying in. Nothing less is demanded by the God of creation, the God of justice, the God revealed in and as the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, when we've shot our best and boldest arrows at the target reflected in the pool, he's referring to an illustration he gave earlier, the water may be so splashed and stirred that for a while we can see the image no longer. Scholarship sometimes has that effect. A voice may whisper that it was no image, but only imagination. It was a mirage, a fantasy. But as the water settles, with gentle ripples still visible where the arrow went in, the image will return. And we will gaze at it once more and know that, that in the Lord... Our, our labor has not been in vain. Right? That's the resurrection. Okay? Um, and, and, I mean, I, I can only do it 45 minutes worth of justice. <laughs> All right? Um, the implications for this are so far-reaching and so deep that I think if we, if we 
um, delved into them day after day after day, which you should. Um, that it would that I, I don't think there are enough lives to live to get to the to the to the bottom of what actually happened when Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, um, and and the, and the fact that that he's alive today, and that he took on disciples as a first century Jewish rabbi, and that he continues to take on disciples today. Okay, um, so. Uh, and and he, he continues to take on disciples, not just so people will be like, I don't want to go to hell, right? Um, which is why, like, I think the, those, the diagnostic questions we use around here a lot, I mean, I think it's helpful to, to help um, kind of see where people are on a baseline theological level, but I don't like them in the sense that um, it waters down the gospel to just a where are you going when you die kind of theology, Right? I think a much better question to ask someone is, hey, Jesus is still alive, and he wants to use you. He wants to use you in a very specific way, right here, right now, for this epic story that's been going on for all of humanity, and we get to be the ones that have the ball right now. We're the ones with breath in our lungs right now. And so I think a a much better question is, hey, if you knew that you were going to live and live for a really long time, how would you want to live your life? Where is meaning found? Where is substance found in your existence? These are the types of questions we need to ask because when people begin to realize that um, as they think about their life, that's why most people are like, man, this this life is crazy. I wouldn't want to live forever. Forever in this futility? Except that Jesus is alive. And, and, that in, and, and that in him, we get to have life in his name. I read a, a tweet by a guy named Eugene Peterson today that just blows my mind. Eugene Peterson blows my mind all the time. But um, if you haven't read Eugene Peterson, read Eugene Peterson, right? And your mind also will be blown. <laughs> but he said this in his tweet today. Um, he said, the spiritual life can be explained as us coming to the end of ourselves and being so utterly exhausted um, that we turn to Jesus to find life. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, right? It's the fact that I'm going to try life my way, and then ultimately I think the realization sets in that it's like, yeah, but it just doesn't work that way. And so I'm going to go over here where it does work. There's a pragmatism about it. Because Jesus uh, is not just, I'm I'm not just making a claim that that's some mythological character that doesn't exist. I mean, this is reality. This is the way things actually are. And so for, for people who want to live a life that um, makes sense, that works, then follow Jesus. Because when he says he's the way, he actually is the way. Right? Um, when, when he said, I am the way, then there's something about that, that if you follow him, that you begin to experience the life that's found only in his name. And, and frankly, I think, too, that that's really the only way life makes sense at all is is. The, the fact that um, life is found only in his name. That's why, did you, did you guys know, the very first Christians were known as those who walked in what? In the way. That's what Christianity was called before it was called Christianity. It was known as the way. And, and, and I think that they got that from Jesus who said, I am the way, right? Which is why Christianity at its very heart is not a, a, a code of ethics or a set of rules to follow. Right? It is, Christianity at its heart is a relationship with a person. 
And, and so, um, which is why walking in the way is not participating in a small group or a program or a code of ethics or living your life a certain way so that you can be a good citizen. It is communing with a living individual. Um, frankly, not just a living individual, an individual who is life. <laughs> he is the individual that if, you're, if you live and are joined um, by faith, by grace, through faith to him, you cannot die because he is life. And so as we talk about discipleship to Jesus, I think it's really important for us to think about it in, in, in that kind of way. Um, it, here's a really profound statement. I, I would love for you guys to think about this and think about it some more and then think about it some more. But, but Mike Wilkins, who has been really influential in my life, he said this. He said, faulty conceptions of discipleship um, focus on what we do rather than on who we are. Most of the time when people think about, hey, um, let's talk about discipleship to Jesus. Most of the time, people begin to think about what? Have I read my Bible lately? Right. Have, I, um, have I shared my faith lately? Have I done these? Have I, have I given to the homeless guy? Have I, dude, I was on a call this week, all right? Um, so um, we get to, uh, one of my jobs is uh, I get to participate in what's known here at Watermark as the residency program, right? And so I, I help out uh, as Blake Holmes, my boss, leads that. Sometimes I come alongside and help him out. And um, we had about 130 people apply to the residency this year, and it looks like we're probably going to take about 15 of them. And so um, while I was a little bit a part of that process of selecting those 15 and by just way of like reference, um, I, I, I because there were so many applicants and so many people had to be told no, I got a list of about 10 names. It was like, hey, you have to call these guys and tell them no, you know. And I was like, hey, thanks for that. Golly, you know, my name's Nathan. No, you know. It's like, geez, nobody likes that, you know. And so luckily I knew some of these guys and it was a great conversation. It was hopefully encouraging to them. Um, but one of these dudes I didn't know. And so I called him and I said, hey, man, just based on your application, um, like, you live here in Dallas, and it looks like you go to church here, but you're not a member, you're not serving with us. Like, um, the way forward for you, if you want to apply in the future, is for you to become a member, serve with us so we can get to know you, right? And then, um, and, and then begin to lead with us so we know you have leadership capacity. At that point, then we're not, sh- you know, shooting craps on you. We, we actually know you, we, and we can talk to other people who know you. And so do you, un- do you understand that? And there was a long silence on the phone. And I was like, hey, do you have any questions of me before? And he was, and this guy just, I mean, um, he started to just go off. It was not pretty, right? And um, yeah, so I was sitting there talking to him and I was trying to maintain my composure because it's like, dude, <laughs> you know, you want to throw down, we can go out there and throw down, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so, and I, and I was like, Lord, that's the flesh in me, you know, so sanctify that as I'm talking to this guy. And, and, uh, but you know what he started giving me? He started, he started trying to prove to me why he was worthy to be in the resident program. And it just kind of struck me that I was like, man, that's so fascinating that that's your go-to response is how you gave money to a homeless guy and how, and, and how you, um, uh, did this good work the other day and how you I mean he was he was attempting to justify himself and frankly guys that's what that's what most of us do most of us tried to measure our spiritual life not on who we are but on what we do right 
And, and what I would tell you is, if, if you're thinking about discipleship in those terms, then you have it backwards. Because ultimately, discipleship to Jesus is not primarily about your behavior. Did y'all know that? Discipleship to Jesus is first and foremost about your relationship with a person, with Jesus, with communing with Him. Now, obviously, there's behavior that goes along with that. But Jesus is transforming you from the inside out, not the other way around. And, and so if, if we're talking about what, it, what does it mean to walk in the way, then, then I think the very first thing we need to do is, is talk about it in, in the, the terms that I just mentioned. And that is, well, what, then what does it mean to personally grow in my relationship with Jesus? So turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. You guys may have uh, you know, heard this before, but, but ultimately um, what Galatians 6-7 is, is saying is, look, um, well, I'll just read it to you. He says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Right? And, and a lot of times when we think about the word liturgy, um, you guys know what liturgy means? Right? It's kind of that rhythm of worship. Most of the time it's the rhythm of worship that you experience if you go to a church with like a, a um, uh, kind of a high church um, traditional, high tradition church, like the Episcopal Church, Anglican Church, Roman Catholic Church, they have a lot of, they have a lot of rote liturgy that's built into their worship service. But, um, a lot of, and a lot of times when people think of liturgy, that's what they're thinking of, is the liturgy of like high church model. But Watermark has a liturgy, right? Our liturgy is um, worship songs with John Abel, <laughs> right? Um, so typically some kind of like video where somebody gets on there and tells you how horrible their life was and, and gets really specific about that and then talks about how Jesus came in and transformed everything, right? And then our liturgy is typically on Sundays some kind of like topical sermon, right? And then our liturgy is um, equipping opportunities like this where you come up here on Thursday nights and you, you know, open your Bible and you're like, okay, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, maybe it's going to women, men's or women's Bible study. Maybe it's going to equip disciple. Maybe it's something like that. But we have our own liturgy. And, and, and I think the question we need to be asking is, what is our liturgy accomplishing? And how deep does that liturgy go in our lives? Because while we may do those things, if, uh, if on the other end of our lives or in the bank, blank spaces in between those events, we're filling it with all kinds of things that don't cultivate a relationship with Jesus, then we are going to sow the liturgy that drives our lives. Right? So if, you, um, if, if, if the liturgy of your life is to wake up, have a cup of coffee, go to work, think about work all day, come home, watch TV, um, you know, the sports channel um, or whatever, you know, drama or what, I don't know, I'm totally generalizing you guys right now, <laughs> but, but whatever that liturgy is and, and you don't, you're not doing anything to cultivate that intimacy with Jesus, then what you're, going to, what you're going to reap out of that is exactly what you've sown. That's why most people will come to a regeneration ministry or an equipped disciple ministry or something like that, and they come and they're like, hey, I checked the box, but I mean, I'm not really substantively changing in any way, right? And I'm like, well, that's because you're reaping what you're sowing. You're, you're doing these things to check a box, but, but there's no substantive relational connection to Jesus that's actually transforming your heart, right? Regen doesn't change you. 
Equipped disciple doesn't change you. Men's Bible study doesn't change you. Women's Bible study doesn't change you. Watermark doesn't change you. Substantive connection and intimacy with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit changes you. It cannot not change you. That's what it does. Right? And so, um, that we need to, we need to, that, when I'm talking about discipleship, I'm talking about that. That's what I'm saying. And so I want to run through this really quickly with you guys and then leave us some time to chat. Um, But I want to talk about this deal called actively passive. Because um, no farmer, and I'll just use this metaphor because it's biblical, but also it's helpful. No farmer ever caused a crop to grow ever. Did you know that? No farmer ever caused any kind of crop to grow. What did the farmer do? The farmer cultivated the ground. He planted the seed. He pulled out the weeds. Right? And then he prayed. (laughs) What was he praying for? Well, he knew he already had sunlight, right? But who sent the sunlight? God did. And then he was praying for what? For rain. And then God, in, in his mystery, the way that he created the material world, that Jesus, remember, yielded his life and then took it back up again, because that's his prerogative. He's the king of the entire universe. He made matter. He made the crop that causes, and causes it to grow. Right? But here's the amazing part, guys. He wants to use the farmer. He wants to use the farmer to say, look, man, cooperate with me. And there's something about that cooperation that as we co- cooperate with the Spirit, uh, the Spirit's work in our lives, and we cultivate that ground, the Spirit shows up in that and transforms us. Um, not so we can begin to behave and begin to become ethical and begin to be moral and all of these things, but um, what he's doing is he's causing um, our desires to shift as we cultivate that ground, he's sending the rain and he's causing the growth. Um, but, but that growth is, again, not to make us moral. Uh, the growth is to say, um, not by God's grace, I haven't sinned because of all these fences that I've built up in my life so that I can't sin. Right. It's like putting a rabid dog into a cage. Right? The rabid dog is like, oh, man, I haven't bitten anybody lately by the grace of God. Well, it's because you put yourself in a cage. You're still a rabid dog. Right? When I'm talking about transformation, when I'm talking about discipleship to Jesus, I'm saying, no, Jesus comes and, make, and takes the rabid out of the dog. You're not a rabid dog anymore. You don't bite anybody, um, not because um, you're in a cage. You don't bite anybody anymore because you don't want to anymore. That's transformation. So, so for the guy that's like, hey, man, by God's grace, I didn't like lash out at my wife this week. You know, I'm like, well, that's because, dude, your wife's on the other side of the world, you know, or, you know, uh, you you plug in the sin struggle, you know, by God's grace, I didn't do this. And it's like, um, yeah, that's good. Um, But we just want to make sure that we're not reinforcing a deep seated legalism or attempt to justify ourselves by our action. Right. The, the deeper question is, yeah, you may not have lashed out at your wife, but is God changing your heart and is your affection growing for your wife? So you didn't lash out to her because, you, because you're gaining a, a deeper intimacy and love for her. That's transformation. That's discipleship to Jesus. And so when we're talking about the do of discipleship, it has to follow that foundational truth that I just talked about. Um, Steve Porter, the guy that's going to be on the webinar tomorrow, he said this, the ultimate goal of human existence is to receive life from above, 
the reign of God and allow that divine life to so permeate and influence our thoughts, attitudes, beliefs, desires, and powers that who we are and what we are able to do is beyond what could be accomplished through our natural abilities alone. Right? We become a conduit by which the, the, Spirit of, the Spirit of God moves in us first and then through us. And in that process, we begin to experience in a very real sense the life of God. We begin to participate in the divine life. We begin, frankly, guys, to become the people that we were created to be in the beginning when Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening. And we can do that now because of the resurrection. So uh, I want to I de- delineate what I'm talking about maybe in a, in a better sense. And I'll go through this really quickly because I'm running out of time. But, but it, uh, the legalist, um, in the legalist view, the legalist views um, the end of the Christian life as just moral behavior. He, he's just saying, hey, I just want to behave. I just want to become a moral person. And that's the end of Christianity. And so um, it's, his behavior becomes a means of acceptance, whereby he says, I want God to love me. And in order for God to love me, I need to behave in certain ways. So I'm going to build a structure in my life where I can begin to behave in those certain ways so that God will love me and so that I can become a moral person. Right? The power that drives the legalist is guilt and shame. Right? It's negative reinforcements that become the root from which that person begins to act out in the Christian life. It's not fueled by love. It's fueled by a sense of failure by a sense of shame about that, what that person is. That person is attempting to rectify the guilt and shame that they've found deep, that's deep-seated, uh, rooted in the depths of their soul, and they're trying to weed it out under their own strength, right? It totally lacks the power to transform them. That person will go, that person could be the most waterlogged person in the world. That person has done regen, re-engage, men's Bible study, equipped disciple, core classes. They've done everything, Right? But if they're doing it out of this um, sense, then they're missing the fundamental nature of what discipleship to Jesus actually is, which gets back to Mike Wilkins' comment at the beginning. Faulty conceptions of discipleship focus on what people do instead of thinking about and considering who we are. On the other hand, the gospel teaches us that the goal is not behavior. The goal is not that you would... um, become a better moral person, the goal isn't behavior at all. The goal is God Himself and intimacy with Him. So when you aim at that goal, um, it becomes a means of grace to knowing God. When you till the ground, it's tilling the ground so that you can receive, so that you're actively doing something, but you're passively receiving from God His power of transformation to change who you are on the inside. That will naturally play itself out um, externally in your behavior, not so that you can uh, cope and create um, external acts of righteousness that come from an internal um, dis, disoriented uh, inner life, but so that you can bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Right? You can't conjure those things up. That's the gift of God through the power of the Holy Spirit as you agree with His work in your life. This type of life is empowered by um, the Spirit and is fueled by the love of God. Right? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14 It is the love of God that compels me. Right? Not inner guilt and shame. 
It's the love of God poured out through Jesus Christ on the cross that will absolutely shift and change the way that I live my life. And so, number four, you participate with the Spirit. You become a co-laborer. You become someone who has entered into the resurrection kind of life that you live in enemy-occupied territory. To to stake um, a claim in the ground to say, hey, my king has already defeated death, right? And he's coming again. And whoever happens to be sitting on Caesar's throne, he will physically remove you from that throne because it's not your seat. This is by Dallas Willard, um, another influential dude in my life. He said, I've been raised in religious circles of very fine people where the emphasis had been exclusively on faithfulness to right beliefs, doctrine, and upon bringing others to profess those beliefs. Now, of course, that's of central importance. But when that process alone is emphasized, the result is a dry and a powerless religion, religious life, no matter how sincere, and it leaves a person constantly vulnerable to temptations of all kinds. Um, therefore, to see actual invasions of human life by the presence and action of God greatly encouraged me to believe that the life and promises given in the person of Christ and in the Scripture were meant for us today. I saw that ordinary individuals who sought the Lord would find Him real. Actually, that He would come to them and convey His reality. Look, guys, this is the whole point. (laughs) The whole point is not so we could come in here and for six weeks open the Gospels and take you through the story of Jesus and just look at that portrait of Jesus so that we we can be like, man, I have a better understanding of, of a first century Jew whose name was Jesus, who claimed things and did things and died and rose from the dead, hallelujah, right? That's not the point of this class. The point of this class is, the, you know, the Latin phrase that, that, that's famously known in that painting is, ecce homo, right? That behold the man. And the man is not dead. The man is alive. He's alive today. And through his spirit, His presence is actually um, available to us on a more dynamic level than if he was physically standing here. Because he doesn't just, he's not just physically here with us. For those who have confessed their sin and found their life solely in him, he dwells within you by the power of his spirit. He's transforming you um, to be from, he's transforming you from a traitor who has rebelled against God back into a son. Right, and, and, and the life that flows out of that um, is, is so transformative that you become an ambassador of reconciliation to the rest of the world. Right? You become a little Jesus because he lives inside of you. And if you let him and you walk with him, um, then he will so radically transform the inside of you that you will become the type of conduit you were created for so that you can begin to image God in an accurate way to the rest of the world so that the entire world would be permeated by the presence and the love of God. That's Christianity. Anything less is not Christianity. You guys tracking with me? All right, well, dadgummit, we got a lot more stuff to cover and not enough time. And I want to give you guys, um, I want to give you guys some time to, to, to react. And then I've got a little video for us at the end. Um, so that's actually good that we have to stop here because I'll just tell you, if you want to hear the rest of it, log in to that webinar tomorrow and we'll talk about it, right? <laughs> um, but there's two mics here. Um, if you guys just flip them on. If, 
hey, if just anything, anything, as I told you guys before, um, anything that's kind of stuck out to you in this class over the last six weeks or any kind of comment you want to make about really anything that has to do with this class, um, then I would invite you to do that. I, I, I know a lot of times when these classes are over, it's just kind of like, oh, you know, thanks for coming. See you later. But, uh, but I wanted to give you guys a little bit of time. So if you do have, want to say something or um, kind of interact with everybody, hey, I learned this or I was encouraged by this or, um, or questions or whatever, um, feel free to do that. I'm going to give you about 60 seconds, and if nobody moves, then I'm just going to keep going. Okay. told my son earlier today, he, he's, he's stalling um, when he goes to bed now. He's getting more creative, and he's, we're potty training him, so as soon as we put him in bed, he's like, I got a TT on the potty, you know. I'm like, I don't believe you. I told him that the other day. I don't believe you. Um, and sure enough, we got him on the potty, and he didn't do anything. So I gave him, I said, I, I said you got 60 seconds. <laughs> Pee in the potty. <clears throat> That's not the clock for you guys. Y'all can... <laughs> Please do that on your own time. There's streams right up. Anybody? All right, once, twice. Gone like a freight train, you know. Here we go. I'll just keep going. So um, I'm going to skip that. So uh, there's a handout. That, uh, that you should also have that's called a rule of faith, and also there's one called a means of grace. I would encourage you guys to, to check that out, um, and, and ultimately, um, you know, there, there's a, that's a great way to think about um, your own personal discipleship to Jesus and, and how to cultivate intimacy with God. Um, there's, a, there's a great uh, just uh, self-explanatory a thing for you to consider. And then I would also encourage you, I know I, I picked on Watermark's ministries here a lot, um, and I was doing so in a negative way, just because I think sometimes they are used in a negative way. Um, not, not like we're doing them in a negative way, but people are coming in, and their inner disposition is not such that, they, that the ministry actually accomplishes what it's supposed to. Um, not because there's anything wrong with the ministry, but because there's something wrong with that person's inner disposition, right? And so I would encourage you, if you've, um, as you're thinking about a rule of faith, if that's something, if like Bible study and prayer and scripture memorization and evangelism is something that just has never taken root in your life, I would highly, highly encourage you to sign up for our Equip Disciple ministry, okay? Um, it's a great bunch of guys and gals that lead that ministry, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a great context and environment that's going to teach you how to plow the ground appropriately, okay? So um, please, 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 if you've never done that before, I would ask you to seriously consider that. Um, and then secondly, as far as walking in the way, um, you, you, it's not just enough to plow the ground, right? It's, it's not just enough to plow the ground and do it alone. Um, you have to, um, and, and, and this is why this, the Spirit doesn't just use the, the personal disciplines that we can practice to cultivate personal growth um, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He also uses His people, Right? And so I would also encourage you, just like at the beginning of the class, Scott Michael was here for the first couple of weeks, and he just encouraged everybody and said, hey, if you're living in isolation right now, and by isolation I mean like you don't have any kind of substantive friendships where you're sharing what's going on in your life, where you're sharing um, the, the successes and the failures and the struggles and the joys and all, if, if you're just living alone 
right? Then Watermark has a structure whereby we can plug you in with other people so that you can begin to live the Christian life the way it's supposed to be lived. And that is in the context of a community. So invest in that. Um, You will... You will um, passively be quenching the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life if you don't invest in Christian community. We are not supposed to be living alone. Thirdly, engage in a strong mission. And I would just tell you this about the Great Commission. Um, you know, most of us know, and this is Jesus' some of his last words. Well, it is his last words in, in uh, the book of Matthew. But, um, you know, he commands his disciples. He's like, go and make disciples. Okay, so you're like, well, how do I do that? Um, and, and what is that exactly? Which is exactly what we're going to be talking about in that webinar tomorrow at noon, right? Sign up for it. Um, that, um, well, firstly, you get baptized into the triune life. I mean, and that, that is uh, conversion, right? You, you actually encounter Jesus through the power, of the resurrected Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and through the Holy Spirit, he comes to dwell in you. He's, he begins to make you into the person that you were created to be. Um, so we baptize people into the triune life, not just with water, but um, through the Spirit, um, as the Spirit um, be, comes to and dwell in that person. And then secondly, we teach them obedience to Jesus' commands. Again, we don't just teach the commands of Jesus. We teach obedience to the commands of Jesus. Again, if you just come to this class and just learn more information about Jesus, but you don't substantively connect to him in a deeper way, then it doesn't matter. You might as well just have skipped the last six weeks, right? It would have been better that you be confused to continue in your confusion than for you to know and not do, right? Um, so we teach obedience to Jesus' commands, and, and, and we do that as we walk with people. And ultimately, and I think this is the whole point that Jesus was making, right? As he said, oh, and by the way, as you're doing that, you're, beginning, you're going to begin to realize something as you um, are participating in your own personal discipleship to Jesus, and then as the Holy Spirit begins to use you in other people's discipleship to Jesus. Um, and that is this. Whatever activity you think you're doing in that person's life, the deeper you go into that, the more you begin to realize, oh, I haven't really been doing anything at all. It has been the Spirit um, in me and with me, and ultimately that other person, the Spirit with us, that has been transforming. So actually the most significant part of the Great Commission is not that we should go and make disciples. It's the fact that Jesus is with us. Right? He's doing it. We are co-laborers with him. We have things to do. But, but like Paul says at the end of Colossians 1, um, I, I, to this end I strive with all of the power that he so powerfully works within me. So Paul is striving, but in his striving he begins to realize that the actual work and the power that he's striving under is not his own. And that's the miracle of, of, of discipleship to Jesus, is that it is Jesus who takes on disciples. It's Jesus who disciples us through His Spirit, right? And, and that we get to participate with one another in our own discipleship to Jesus. There's a couple of uh, deals there that, that um, I don't have time to go into, but I'll, I mean, I, I think I'll just end with this to say, hey, uh, engaging in a strong mission means that as we, uh, as we walk our lives of discipleship to Jesus, as we journey through life, as we journey through this, this life that we've been called into through the power of the Holy Spirit, is that we begin to realize that as we get close to Jesus, 
It's not, that, it's not that we go out on mission because we're trying to please Him. It's that as we get close to Jesus, we go out on mission because Jesus is going out on mission. If you follow Him, you're going to follow Him into His mission because that's what He's doing. Right? So when He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, it's not that He's sitting on the shore going, hey, you're doing it wrong. Try, to, you know, try it on the other side of the boat, you know? He did that back then. Now we begin to realize, oh, wait, he, he, um, the, the lake is his, the boat is his, the people are his, and he's in the boat fishing with us. And actually, um, I thought I was tossing the nets out, but he's actually doing it. It's like me fishing with my three-year-old son, right? He's holding the pole, but I've got it, right? And I'm like, come on, Nate, you know, reel it in. And he's reeling it in, but my hand is on top of his. That's discipleship to Jesus. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Why? Um, and I think Jesus would say this. Um, be, because I'm fishing for men. If you follow me in my way, then that's the way I go. Right? It's a privilege. It's not an obligation. Right? We've got to change our thinking around that. So I want to do an exercise real quick, um, and I would, I would invite you, don't have to, if you're uncomfortable or whatever, you know, you're uncomfortable. Ah. Um, I mean, the flesh side of me wants to be like, get over it, you know, but I want to be gentle and just be like, hey, seriously, if you're uncomfortable, stay seated, whatever. Um, but I would invite you to stand, and stand by, like, like stand, like right now. Um, and, and I want to recite this together. Um, because, and I want to recite it together because I've been telling this story for six weeks, five weeks really, because I was gone one of them. Um, but you just need to understand that you are one link in a very, very, very long chain of people who have been saying these words for literally like thousands of years, right? Um, and, and that um, it's a privilege for us to be linked together, um, uh, not only with uh, Jesus the son, but also with his church, the bride, right? Who's way bigger than this building and this local group of people, right? We're connected um, in history um, to these people through things like this. So this is the Nicene Creed. I don't have time to go into how it came about, right? But um, about 1,700 years ago, um, this was drafted. Um, After 300 years of this same content working itself out under Roman persecution, um, So let's say this together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same substance as the Father. Through Him all things were made, both in heaven and on earth. For us men and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. He suffered. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think that's a fitting way to end this class.